Dear friends, my name is John Bergen, and you're listening to The Word is Resistance. In this podcast, we ask, what do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, in liberation? The music you're hearing in this episode is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding, We Are Building Up a New World. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker, and we're deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith and Surge Action, Surge or Showing Up for Racial Justice, organizes white people to take bold action against white supremacy. This podcast aims to resource us in that work, which means it is for everyone, but geared towards white people working to build our resistance muscles. We welcome your feedback and especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. Listen, this is Luke six twenty seven to 38. But I say to you that, listen, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies. Do good and lend expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High. For God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your parent is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap, for the measure you give will be the measure you get back. This Luke passage is one of the most famous of Jesus' lines, and if you were like me, you probably grew up thinking about this as a passage promoting passivity, kindness, meekness. You know, you know, meekness, that characteristic that sucks now, but ultimately you get to inherit the earth. Well, that's sort of true, part of it. But really this passage is about disruption about creative, nonviolent resistance, about using our own internal power in moments of interaction with the forces of oppression to disrupt and transform situations of conflict. What do I mean 
Well, here I'm going to borrow from the late Bible scholar Walter Wink, who reinterpreted the Gospel of Matthew version of this passage amidst the creative resistance of the South Africa anti-apartheid campaigns of the 1980s. Wink writes, If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. You're probably imagining a blow with the right fist, but such a blow would fall on the left cheek. To hit the right cheek with a fist would require the left hand, but the left hand could only be used for unclean tasks. At Qumran, a Jewish religious community of Jesus' day, to gesture with the left hand meant exclusion from the meeting and penance for ten days. To grasp this, you've got to physically try it. How would you hit the other's right cheek with your right hand? If, you, if you've tried it, you will know the only feasible blow is a backhand. The, black, the backhand was not a, a blow to injure, but to insult, humiliate, degrade. It was not administered to an equal, but to an inferior. Masters, backhanded slaves, husbands, wives, parents to children, Romans to Jews. The whole point of the blow was to force someone who was out of line back into place. Notice Jesus' audience. If anyone strikes you, these are people used to being thus degraded. He is saying to them, refuse to accept this kind of treatment anymore. If they backhand you, turn the other cheek. That you really need to physically enact this to see the problem. By turning the cheek, the servant makes it impossible for the master to use the backhand again. His, his nose is in the way. And anyway, it's like telling a joke twice. If it didn't work the first time, it simply won't work. The left cheek now offers a perfect target for a blow with the right fist, but only equals fought with fists, as we know from Jewish sources. And the last thing the master wishes to do is to establish this underling's equality. This act of defiance renders the master incapable of asserting his dominance in this relationship. He can have the slave beaten, but he can no longer cow him. By turning the cheek, then, the inferior is saying, I'm a human being just like you. I refuse to be humiliated any longer. I am your equal. I am a child of God. I won't take it anymore. Such defiance is no way to avoid trouble, Meek acquiescence is what the master wants. Such cheeky behavior may call down a flogging or worse. But the point has been made. The powers that be have lost their power to make people submit. And when large numbers begin behaving thus, and Jesus was addressing a crowd, you have a social revolution on your hands. Wink continues, Jesus' second example of assertive nonviolence is set in a court of law. A creditor has taken a poor man to court over an unpaid loan. Only the poorest of the poor were subjected to such treatment. Deuteronomy 24, 10-13 provided that a creditor could take as collateral for a loan a poor person's long outer robe, but it had to be returned each evening so the poor man would have something in which to sleep. Why then does Jesus counsel them to give over their undergarments as well? This would mean stripping off all their clothing and marching out of court stark naked. Naked Nakedness was at that time taboo in Judaism, and shame fell less on the naked party than on the person viewing or causing the nakedness. Genesis 9, 20-27 By stripping, the debtor had brought shame on the creditor. Imagine the guffaws this saying must have evoked. There stands the creditor, covered with shame, the poor debtor's outer garment in one hand, his undergarment in the other. The tables 
have suddenly been turned on the creditor. The debtor had no hope of winning the case. The law was entirely in the creditor's favor, but the poor man has transcended this attempt to humiliate him. He has risen above shame. At the same time, he has registered a stunning protest against the system that created his debt. He has said, in effect, you want my robe? Here, take everything. Now you've got all I have except my body. Is that what you'll take next? Imagine the debtor leaving court naked. His friends and neighbors, aghast, inquire what happened. He explains. They join his growing procession, which now resembles a victory parade. This is guerrilla theater. The entire system by which debtors are oppressed has been publicly unmasked. The creditor is revealed to be not a legitimate moneylender, but a party to the reduction of an entire social class to landlessness and destitution. And, and this un unmasking is not simply punitive, since it offers the creditor a chance to see, perhaps for the first time in his life, what his practices cause, and to repent, end quote. So what we have here has little to do with passivity and much more to do with soul force. When I think of this passage and the fact that Wink wrote this during the divestment struggles of the 1980s, I can't help but think of a famous Philly story related to this, the story of Leon Sullivan. In the late 1950s, Philadelphia was stuck. Efforts by the NAACP, the city's Human Rights Commission, and other professional liberal groups had helped bring some measure of legal equality for Philly's black residents. But for many poor people of color, the right to eat at a lunch counter does, didn't and still doesn't matter if you don't have the money to buy lunch. As many of you know, on February 1st, 1960, four black college students in Greensboro, North Carolina, began a sit-in at a Woolworths lunch counter. Their actions touched off a movement that spread across the South. Within three weeks, um, in February 1960, solidarity pickets began outside of Woolworths in West Philly. Although that lunch counter was technically integrated, it sparked off a conversation about the economic needs of black Philadelphians. Enter Leon Sullivan. Born in West Virginia, Sullivan had become the pastor of Zion Baptist Church on North Broad Street in 1950 when he was just 28 years old. Deeply concerned about the needs of his church members, Sullivan would later write, quote, I long to see the kingdom of God a reality in the everyday lives of men. Some people look for milk and honey in heaven while I look for ham and eggs on earth, end quote. Sullivan brought together 400 fellow black pastors, that's itself not an easy feat, and proposed something simple, a boycott of businesses that would not hire black workers. On June 6, 1960, 400 ministers stood up on a Sunday morning and announced their selective patronage campaign. Their first target was Tasty Cake. Now, if you're not from Philly, Tasty Cake makes desserts sold at corner stores. Think Little Debbie's, but it, it means better. It's better than Little Debbie's, I promise. The ministers announced that they would not be buying Tasty Cake products until the company hired black workers in all sectors of its operations. So at the start of the summer, as school was getting out, thousands of black church folks stopped buying where they couldn't work. Black-owned corner stores refused to carry Tasty Cake products. Tasty Cake protested, and they promised halfway measures, but the black community persisted. And on August 7th, 
tasty cake folded. Sullivan later said after that victory, black people were walking 10 feet tall in the streets of Philadelphia. The next company they went to, Pepsi, folded before the selective patronage campaign even got started. So did the next company, and the next. In the end, the targeted Don't Buy Where You Can't Work campaign created over 2,000 jobs for low-income black folks in Philadelphia. But more than that, it proved that black communities could leverage their power to bring change. They didn't need to rely solely on lawyers or benevolent white-run organizations. Reverend Sullivan would go on to other strategies. He recognized that breaking open racist hiring practices had to be met with job training programs that gave low-income people the skills needed to get and hold better paying jobs. So he helped found the Opportunities Industrial Center in Philly, which still provides job training to thousands of people. Reverend Sullivan recognized that the struggle against white supremacy was international in scope, and so in 1977, as a board member for General Motors, yep, that General Motors, he wrote The Sullivan Principles, a code of conduct mandating that GM must treat employees the same regardless of race, putting them in direct contradiction to the apartheid laws in South Africa. The Sullivan Principles became the standard for corporate involvement in the anti-apartheid movement and played a huge role in getting GM and other companies to divest from South Africa in the 1980s. Reflecting later on this, Reverend Sullivan said, starting with the workplace, I tightened the screws step by step and raised the bar step by step. Eventually, I got to the point where I said that companies must practice corporate civil disobedience against the laws, and I threatened South Africa and said, in two years, Mandela must be freed, apartheid must end, and blacks must vote, or else I'll bring every American company I can out of South Africa, end quote. In this week's gospel passage, Jesus encourages his followers to use what power they have to force their oppressors to see them as people. If your boss or a colonial occupier or your partner tries to backhand you and degrade you, flip the script on them. Jesus spoke to a people tired of getting beaten up and suggested creative nonviolent strategies to assert humanity and dignity in the face of military occupation and economic strangulation. Unlike the Don't Buy Where You Can't Work campaign, however, at this stage in the text, Jesus isn't starting a social movement. He's not promoting mass coordinated action against oppressors. That comes later during Holy Week. Instead, he begins by planting seeds to create a culture of resistance. I'm reminded here of radical black historian Robin D.G. Kelly's work on infrapolitics, the below-the-surface tactics of resistance to oppression that are constantly at play. Kelly has unpacked how, prior to the Montgomery bus boycott, resistance to segregated busing was constant. Hundreds of people in disparate, small-scale acts of refusing to stand, refusing to move, refusing to pay, etc., refused to cooperate with the system. This infrapolitical refusal and resistance set the tone for a later mass boycott, and it primed the pump by building assertiveness and creativity. Creativity here is key. Turning the other cheek probably only works a few times before bosses start finding other ways of punishing disobedient workers. Abusers, bosses, and colonizers are disturbingly creative. And so resistance must be creative too. Constantly trying out new tactics and sharing success stories. We cannot get caught repeating the same story. All this is not to say that this is easy. Nonviolent resistance brings repression. 
It often escalates violence instead of stopping it. In fact, large-scale nonviolent resistance relies on a violent response to ultimately undermine the legitimacy of the oppressors. The paradox of repression is that when sustained creative nonviolent resistance is met with violent repression, the disparity in tactics and values on display can shift who has popular support. We will not practice nonviolent resistance all the time, and when we do, we will not practice it perfectly. If you're listening to this and you find yourself facing violence, I'm not saying that you must practice creative resistance in the ways I've described. Often, de-escalation is a key strategy for keeping yourself alive. But how we assert and protect our humanity and dignity is for each of us to determine. How we love ourselves into freedom is a unique journey. Thanks be to God. Today's call to action is simple. Practice creativity. I invite you to take time after listening today to draw or write possible creative strategies for some organizing situation or struggle you're engaged in. Where are you not seeing the power you have to knock violent people or violent structures off their rhythm? What creative twists could upset the apple cart of power relations, get something unstuck, or move a group forward? What holds you back from trying that creativity out? Why? Write, draw, wrestle, and try something out. Thank you for joining me today. As always, let us know how it goes by commenting on our Facebook page or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you're using. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org, and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search for The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. Transcripts are available on our website, which include any references, credits, and copyright information. And thanks to our sound editor, Max Pearl, for putting this together. Blessings to all of you as you continue in the work of being transformed, of transforming the movement, and transforming the world. Go in peace.